This year, in January, my wife and I, my wife Kim and I, will celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary. And that's a big deal for some people, I guess. If you've been married 50 years, it's not a big deal. If you've been married 10, it's a big deal. We also were engaged a year before we got married, and we dated for two years. So really, in next week will be our 33rd anniversary of our first date. And it's amazing. That makes me feel so old just to think about 33 years ago I had my first date with her. But in all those 33 years, we have seen so many incredible things change about us and about our relationship, about us as individuals, and in how we interact with one another. uh, Anyone that's been married for any length of time can tell you about all the differences that happen over time to you, how you interact with one another, but also how you grow. But one of the things that's interesting is there are some things that in that 33 years have never changed. They have remained consistent. And not all of those things that have remained consistent are positive. Some of them are still just as annoying as they were 33 years ago. And so I want to give you an example of one of those that I think maybe you can relate to. So this is kind of relationship advice to those of you that are not in relationships. So you might want to take a quick note because I never learned my lesson. From the moment our first date 33 years ago to this week, one thing that has never changed is it seems like whenever one of us will ask the other, what do you want to eat or where do you want to go to eat? The response from the other person is always, always 99.9% of the time, the same response. It doesn't matter to me. You see some of you nodding. It doesn't. Sometimes we can make it sound more self-sacrificing. Doesn't matter to me whatever you want. Well, here's my relationship advice. Here's the wisdom of 33 years and what I've gotten from that. When someone says it doesn't matter to me or whatever it is that you want, that is a lie. (laughs) It's a lie. You can test it. I've tested it for 33 years. You can leave this morning and you can have that discussion going out to your car. Where do you want to eat lunch? It doesn't matter to me. Whatever you want to eat. And so when you leave, pull into the very first place that you come to. The very first, it doesn't matter what, it just pull in. And I promise you, whoever it was that said, it doesn't matter to me, will say, I'm not really in the mood for this. <laughs> right? And so you go to the next place and you, you pull in and you say, what about this? And, and, and I'm not really in the mood for this. So anytime you hear, it doesn't matter to me, understand that's not what they're saying. Because it does matter to them. It matters what they were wanting, what they desired. And, and I know you would think after 33 years, I would know better to not leave the house without a planned destination. That's the wisdom there. Don't leave the house without knowing exactly where you are going and what you want to eat. And I know in the mountains here, there's not a whole lot of choices. So you don't get into a whole lot of arguments. But early in my marriage, we lived in Dallas when I was in graduate school. And they had those places where there would be eight or nine or ten or eleven restaurants right next to each other. And we would leave the house. This was pre-kids. We would leave the house and we would have that, I don't care, it doesn't matter to me. And we would drive and we would pull into one restaurant, out of one restaurant. And I can't tell you how many times we spent an hour or more deciding what we were going to eat only to get angry and to grab fast food and go home mad. 
And I'm not even going to get started on what it's like after you choose something, after you've gone through all of that, and you eat, and you're walking out the door, and one of you says to the other, what's wrong? And they say, I really wasn't in the mood for that. See, what I wanted to try to get you to understand is it's amazing when you think about it how much our appetites dictate our decision-making. How much what we desire, what we want, what we're hungry for drives and motivates the decisions that we make. It it could be your stomach. uh, It could be whatever you're hungry for and that dictates where or what or how you're going to eat. Or it could be the desires of the heart, things that you want, things that you want to spend your time on, things that you, you want to have, things that you want to possess. Those are all part of our appetites. Those are all part of what we get hungry for. And if you want to wonder what you're really hungry for, all you have to do is go back and look at the last week and see where you spent your time and your energy and your effort. Because that will reveal what you were hungry for. Kind of like if you wanted to find out what you were in the mood to eat, you can go back and list the places that you ate. If you looked at my menu from the last week, you would see I ate Mexican food probably five times last week. And so you would say Rusty was hungry for Mexican food. And you can do the same thing with your life. You can go back and say, where did I spend the most hours? Where did I spend the most time? Where did I spend the most energy? Where did I spend the most money? Well, wherever it is that is at the top of that list, that is what you were most hungry for because you were spending your time, talent, and treasure to fulfill a hunger that's inside of you. The reason I bring this up is because many today believe that one of the greatest problems in the church is that Christians or those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ has lost their appetite for the things of God. We've lost our hunger for the things of the Spirit. We no longer have a spiritual hunger when it comes to developing a deeper relationship to Jesus Christ. We spend all of our time nibbling and eating and snacking from the table of the world. And then when it comes time to, for God, for the main course, for God to show up, we don't have any time, energy, or, or resources to be able to pour into it. In the vernacular of today, we get full on the chips and the salsa, or full on the bread like your grandma used to warn you about. And so when God shows up, or when God's opportunities showed up, we're already full. And when God begins to open a door and see what you're really hungry for, what does your life reveal? Because the reality of it is, those things that we are getting filled up on, those things that we are nibbling on, they were never created to satisfy the hunger of your soul. There was only one thing created to satisfy the hunger of your soul, and that's the power and presence of God as revealed in His Word, as reconciled through prayer and worship. But we spend so much time eating and nibbling from all of these things that the world says will fill you up, and we get filled quickly. And then we leave still hungry, and some of our spirits in the church, some of our souls in the church, are longing for something to really eat, something to really hang on to, spiritually starving. And over time, what happens is, without even recognizing it, we have lost our hunger and our appetite for the things of God. 
And we got people in the church that walk around thinking they're spiritually full, but their spirits are decaying and dying because they haven't been fed. So I think it's an even greater problem than just losing a spiritual appetite. I think in most churches, it's even harder to self-diagnose. It's even harder to recognize and to realize because I believe we have what would be called spiritual anorexia. When I was a youth pastor for 20 years, I dealt with numerous and many women that struggled with the the eating disorder anorexia, and many of them had to get professional help and medical help. And what always was hard to fathom and hard to get across to the parents and to the friends is that those people's mind had conditioned itself to believe that they were physically full. They'd conditioned their brain to think that they were not hungry, and yet they were starving themselves. And when they looked at the mirror, they they didn't see what we saw. We would look at the mirror and say, don't you understand? You are withering away, but they didn't see reality. They saw themselves through a different lens. And I'm afraid the same thing is happening in the church. So many Christians have convinced themselves that they're spiritually full. I don't have time for any more Bible study. I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to go to worship. I don't have the energy or the resources or or the effort to be able to put into that. I'm doing okay. When in reality, their soul and their spirit is withering away. And it shows itself in our worship and in our walk and in our testimony and how we are impacting the world around us. We have spiritual anorexia, and we can't even see it because we've convinced ourselves that we're full. And I think the same thing was the problem happening to the children of Israel. The very same condition. They had understood and thought that everything was going great, and they were doing wonderful, but in reality, they were spiritually starving For 170 years before the time of Nehemiah, the children of Israel had been away from God. The whole reason they found themselves enslaved in the Old Testament was because they were disobedient to God. They turned their back on God and God gave them over to their own devices. And that meant the nation of Babylon came in and enslaved them and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It was their fault. But they thought the only answer, the only hope to to getting back to normal was to get back to the city, back to building homes, back to their routine. So we've been following the story of Nehemiah for a couple of weeks. And Nehemiah is in the Persian Empire and he has a vision, you know, the the slaves were only there for 70 years and then the, the Persians came in and took over from the Babylonians and they let the slaves go back to Israel. And so they'd been wandering back for 70 years. And Nehemiah gets this vision that they need to go back and build the walls around Jerusalem. And we've been following the story and we learn that he went back with this vision, this dream, and he motivated the people to get together. And in 52 days, they built the walls around Jerusalem. An incredible task, a mile and a half around the city that had been in rubble for 170 years. They rebuilt in less than two months. They were excited and they were motivated. It tells us in Nehemiah chapter 7 that all the people, after they had rebuilt the walls, went back to their own cities and back to their own villages and back to their own towns and back to their routines. See, they thought everything was okay. We've got walls now. We've got security. We've got everything we thought we needed, everything we thought that was missing. But in reality, there was still something not there. 
In reality, they were still not reconciled with God. They hadn't come to the place to recognize that they were missing a relationship with the holy God who had called them in the first place. And so many Christians get to that place that they think the world, they just fill up on it. Fill up on it. I wonder how many of us have ever said, if I only blank, everything would be okay. If I only found the right guy, if I only found the right girl, if I only got the right job, if I only made this amount of money, if I only had this house, if we only could live here, if we could only have this type of children, if we could only whatever it is, then everything would be okay. You see, that is a lie of the world. Because you can have all of that stuff and still be empty. Why? Because all of that stuff doesn't fill the hole inside of you that only the Spirit of God does. And they had taught themselves and convinced themselves that if we could just get the walls up, then everything would be okay. But everything wasn't okay. And that's the context of what takes place in Nehemiah chapter 8. And so this morning, I'm questioning to you real quickly what are you hungry for and more importantly not only what are you hungry for what have you been eating what has been filling you up what gives you nourishment what keeps you motivated what keeps you going because the question for us if you are a follower of Christ is is it really feeding your spirit is it feeding your soul or is it just feeding enough to get by because you see, I think so many times Christians, we come and, and we want just the quick, fast food spirituality. Just get me through the day, Pastor. It's not when we have disasters or tragedies in our life, the first place we turn is to God. We, we can forget God when everything is going good. We forget God when all the things are happening the way we want. And then a tragedy comes along and we want God to be the quick fix. So many people come to church or Bible study or their prayer time is just checking it off a list. It's it's just a fast food. I I just want a quick taste. Just get me through this week. Just get me through this situation. Just get me through tomorrow. The problem with that is that does not nurture your spiritual soul. Because the paradox of being spiritually hungry is that spiritual hunger will always create more hunger. You never get filled. Oh, you can be satisfied. You can be fulfilled. You can be content, as Paul says. But when the Holy Spirit begins to pour Himself into your spirit and you really get hungry for God and for God's presence, it doesn't matter how much you get filled. It doesn't matter how much you get or how content you are or how full you are. You always want a little more. It's like that extra dessert. You know, you can eat and you can eat and you can eat. You say, I can't eat another bite. And you walk by and there's a Krispy Kreme and the hot sign's on. You say, I got to pull in, I can eat one of those, right? That's the way the Holy Spirit is. You can come and worship and pray and see God moving in your life. And that doesn't necessarily fill you for a long term. What it does is it creates a deeper hunger in you for more of God. And instead of seeking that more, the nation of Israel had turned to to walls and security and routine. And it was leaving them empty. And if that's you this morning, I I believe you'll find some hope and some answers from what God did to them. So I want you to listen. We're going to read in chapter 8, Nehemiah, and it's not going to be much. It's not going to be long. It's real simple and real direct. 
It says, when the seventh month came along and the Israelites had settled in their town, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. Now, the seventh month in the nation of Israel, in the Jewish calendar, that is September. You say, well, Rusty, September is the ninth month. Well, it was always the seventh month until the, uh, the Romans came along, and they decided they wanted to honor Julius Caesar, so they added July, and so they honored him with a month. And then they decided they wanted to honor Augustus Caesar, and they added August. And so the seventh month became the ninth month. But to the Jewish people, it's still the seventh month. It's the beginning of the civil calendar. It is on the first day of the seventh month, it is what we call Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And so on the Jewish New Year, the law tells you that everyone is supposed to gather for a celebration. It's a time where you celebrate God's providence, but also it is a time where you spend 10 days preparing your heart for Yom Kippur, which 10 days after Rosh Hashanah is Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is the day of remembrance today, but in Nehemiah's day, it was called the day of judgment. And so what you were supposed to do from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur is to examine yourself. And so they had built a wall, they'd all gone off to their own cities, and it was time to come together for a time of self-examination, the first day of the seventh month. And so it says they all gathered at the water gate. That was the gate they built into Jerusalem, the largest area. The water gate represents life. It represents uh, the way water was brought into the city sustenance brought into the city. And so there's probably, we think, if you read Nehemiah 7, probably between fifty and 75,000 people gathered all together for this time. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. See, the first thing that jumps out right there, what did they say? They call on Ezra for 12 years, 10 years before Nehemiah came back. Ezra had been trying to get the people to worship. He'd been trying to rebuild the temple. He'd been trying to get them back focused on what was really important. We're out of context with God. We're not in the right relationship with God. For 12 years, he'd been trying to take care of it. And here, all of a sudden, when everything else is fixed, the people cry out, bring out the word. Bring out the word. Because they recognized that they had a hunger that everything else wasn't fulfilling. They recognized that the walls didn't fulfill it. And a good economy didn't fulfill it. And a good job and prosperity on the farm. And having the family and everyone moving back from being enslaved didn't fulfill it. The only thing that was going to fill that emptiness in their heart was the word of God. So they said, bring out the word. I want to tell you this morning that the only thing that will feed your spirit and feed your soul with the power and presence of God is the Word of God. My question to you this morning, are you hungry for this book? Are you, do you go to it with anticipation? Do you come and, and pour yourself into it? See, they were tired of going through the motions. They were tired of trying to be full but recognizing they were really empty. And some of you this morning, you know what I'm talking about. Day in and day out, you go through the motions, but really you recognize that something's not right. Something is not the way it's supposed to be. 
And the only way to restore what God had allowed to fall apart started with the Word of God. You want to see the power of God in your life. It doesn't happen through wonderful songs. Those are, I love every song we sang today. I love the special, the, the creed of what we believe. But that's not where the power is. The power to change lives comes from this book, the Bible says. It is the power to set the captives free. It is the power to allow you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to know who Jesus is. And the reason some of us are so hungry, the reason some of your souls are so parched this morning, is because you've lost your hunger for God's Word. You have a spiritual craving that this book will only fulfill. And we're so spiritually anorexic that some of us don't even recognize our hunger for it anymore. We go days, we go weeks, we go months without reading it. Most of us, if we were honest, we probably have at least two or three of them. Most homes have seven. Most homes in America, people that claim to be Christians, at 78% I quoted last week, the average home has seven Bibles in their home. When's the last time you sat down? Not because you had to study something, not because you were preparing something, not because the pastor said something that made you mad and you wanted to go home and check whether or not it was in there. When's the last time you just sat down and said, I just want to read God's love letter to me? When's the last time you just said, I'm, I'm hungry. My soul is hungry. My spirit is hungry. And my job's not feeling it. And my relationship's not feeling it. And my bank account's not feeling it. God, I'm just hungry. I need your word. I remember the story of a little boy that was visiting his grandparents' house for the first time and went into the no-no room. All grandparents have a no-no room. It's that room where you don't touch anything. And you go in and every other word that they say is no, 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 right? So it's a no-no room. And the little boy went in the no-no room and he walked and there was a huge family Bible on the, the middle of the coffee table. And the little boy went over and he said, Daddy, Daddy, what is this? And the dad said, Son, that's the Bible. That's God's book. Without missing a beat, the little boy said, Well, maybe we should give it back to him because we don't use it. I wonder how true that is in so many of our lives. When you really begin to get a a hunger for God, and I'm not just talking about passing hunger pains. See, a lot of us leave church and we've kind of got that grumbling. Oh, yeah, okay, I need to read the Bible. I'm not talking about that. Because that can be satisfied with a snack. I'm talking about a hunger that comes welling up within you that makes you want to just dive in. You want me to tell you how I know they were hungry? It says that he opened the book and he started reading at sunup and he read till noon. That's six hours. You see, you've got to be hungry to sit and listen to the Word of God. He didn't expound. He wasn't saying, let me tell you a funny story. Let me you know, show you a video. He was just reading God's Word. And they sat there for seven hours, or really they stood for six and a half to seven hours and attentively heard what the Word said. See, most of us, we're looking for a snack. God, you got 15 minutes. God, you got 20 minutes. Or or when I'm preaching, God, you got 40 minutes. You're going to listen to 20 of it. God, you got 20, and I'm going to think about what we're going to eat for lunch for the second 20. But you got 20 minutes. Give me what I'm supposed to get. I'm ready to go. That just means you weren't hungry. 
just means you weren't seeking. Just means you weren't you thought you were full. Or you think you're full. It says they were hungry. They came looking for a buffet. When was the last time you couldn't wait to get into the Word? When was the last time you, you couldn't wait for church to be over because you were excited about what God was doing? When you walked out of here, you said, I, I could have sat in there for another hour. That's what happens when you are spiritually hungry. The more you eat, the more you want. They were hungry for God's Word, but not only were they hungry for it, it said they heard it. It said they listened attentively. And the word therefore attentively means it penetrated their heart. See, they just didn't hear it with their ears. They heard it with their heart. It, it, what it means is God spoke to them. They were locked into what He was saying. And understand, you know what He's reading here? It said they brought out the book of Moses. You know what the book of Moses is? It's that part of the Bible when you try to read the Bible in a year that you get bogged down and quit. I mean, I'm just being honest. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the law. When you got a chance this week, go and read Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus and then tell yourselves, could you sit for six hours listening to that? I mean, we can barely sit for 15 minutes and I'm trying to keep your attention. He's just reading from the law. The Bible says as he unlocked it, as he read it, the people were so hungry that they, they couldn't move. They weren't being distracted by the crying baby or the kid that got up or the noise in the front. They were so locked in because God was speaking to their spirit. Because when you're really hungry, you won't settle for anything less. When you're hungry, you can't be distracted. It doesn't matter what's going on. The Word will penetrate your heart and begin to speak to you. Have you ever left church feeling like the preacher was talking to you? Feeling like he was with you that week or maybe he was in a car with you? Or we, in pastor term, we call it reading your mail. You ever feel like the pastor read your mail that week and he got up and he's preaching and it's like, hey, he's talking about me, right? That's good. That's my goal every week. My goal is that no matter what I'm preaching from, it, it can be from Nehemiah, and, and it has nothing to do with whatever's going on in your heart, but I can get so out of the way that the power of this book is so alive that it speaks exactly to what you're going through. I've had people come up afterwards on Sunday and, and say, Pastor, oh my gosh, you were speaking right to me, and here's what the Bible said to me that morning. And I want to say, I, I didn't... Even talk about that. How did the Bible say that to you? Because they were hungry. And when you're hungry, it doesn't matter what's at the buffet. You get fed, and your needs get fed, and your hurts get mended. But you've got to be hungry. And it said they were so hungry that they sat and they listened. When you're hungry, you'll hear nothing will keep you from it. You want to know how we know that they heard? Listen to what I'm going to keep reading. They were hungry and they heard. The third thing I want you to hear, verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Behind him on his right stood a whole bunch of different high priests that I'm not going to try to name, so I'm skipping to verse 5. And it said, Ezra opened the book. And all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord. At the start of Rosh Hashanah, they blow the shofar. You've seen uh, in Jewish tradition when they blow the shofar. That is, it's, it's like an alarm clock. That's the start of Rosh Hashanah. They blow the alarm clock. Vroom, 
important. It, wake up. God's about to say something. So he blows the shofar and everybody stands up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped their Lord with their face to the ground. And then there's a list of priests that went around and read from the book of law, making it clear they were giving the people what they needed to be understood. You see, the people for so long had been away from the God and God's Word, they'd forgotten Hebrew. And he's reading Hebrew, they don't even understand Hebrew anymore. So while he's reading, these priests are going around and translating what he is reading in their language. It's Aramaic for most of them. And so it says they're wandering in the crowd. And as they're wandering in the crowd, people are going from amen, amen, to falling on their face. They're getting convicted. They're getting drawn to the Word of God. How do we know they heard it? Because the Bible says they responded to it. And when you hear God's Word, when it really speaks to you, it will always motivate you to action. You'll always want to leave responding to what it's calling you to do. If you don't hear it, it's easy to walk away and never do anything with it. But when the holy God of the universe splits time for just an instant and speaks, whether it's a whisper or a shout or a clap, into your spirit, you can't help but respond. can't help but want to do whatever He says. They were emotionally moved. When God began to reveal to them, because you see what happens with God's Word is whenever God's Word is preached, it's like a mirror. And it shows us who we really are. It reveals, you know, we can be spiritually anorexic and think we're full and think we're spiritual and think everything is going great. But then God's Word comes along and shows us who God sees in us. And we recognize that our soul, that our spirit is withering away. And when you begin to see that, if you really hear it and it really begins to speak to your spirit, it draws you to respond. So how did they respond? When they began to hear God's name, they began to wave their hands and say, praise the Lord. And then when they began to recognize that the whole reason that they were in the problems that they were in was their fault, it says they got broken and convicted. See, God's Word will always move you to respond it will always affect you. It will affect your worship. I, you know, I, I can't help. I get emotional sometimes when I worship. And I'm an introvert. I'm not an emotional person. I mean, clapping is emotional to me. You know, doing my foot is emotional. But there are times that I, I want to raise my hands and I get emotional. People say, oh, well, you're not supposed to be emotional in worship. We're trying to... What? What does it say to a holy God that we get more emotional and excited about a football game on Saturday than we do experiencing His presence? I mean, I hate to tell you, but at the end of the book, you can go read. There's some emotion gathering around the throne of God. When we see Him high and lifted up, you're going to see some dancing. And you're going to see some people on their face weeping because they didn't think they were getting there. And you're going to see some people that are going to look around and be so excited at all that God has done and is doing. You can't contain yourself. And sometimes it can be in your car, it can be in a home, it can be sitting in a pew. When the Holy Spirit speaks right to you and you hear His voice, sometimes it gets you. Sometimes you just want to shout. Sometimes you just want to raise a hand. Sometimes you just want to bow on your face. But we know they heard from God because they responded. 
they got convicted, and they repented. God's Word always brings conviction. And, and I'm glad it does. I know people today say, well, we're not supposed to preach about conviction because it makes people uncomfortable. We don't want people to be uncomfortable because they may not come back to church. Listen, if I can't teach you to recognize how hungry you are, how can I ever expect you to get fed? And that may make you uncomfortable. It may make you... I'm uncomfortable. This week when I read this, I was uncomfortable. Because I recognized that I had been filling up, even in a good spiritual term, filling up on all kinds of stuff. I had spent hours in God's Word, but God said, that was for you to preach to my people. That wasn't for you to feed your spirit. How much time are you spending just for you and me? Oh yeah, you were praying, but you spent all that time praying for all those people that had needs and all of those things that were going on. How much time did you just spend talking to me? And it motivated me to conviction. It drew me. Because you see, repentance without doing something about it, conviction without repentance doesn't mean anything. You can walk out of church feeling bad that you were hungry, but until you start trying to feel the right stuff, it's not going to make a difference. They were hungry for the Word of God. They heard the Word of God. They responded to the Word of God. And then the last thing I want you to hear, and this, this is what I think brings revival. I hear people, t- I, I've studied revival. I hear people talk about revival. People are praying for revival in our nation. People are saying, we, just, we need revival. And I believe God is going to send another great awakening. It's, it's the only hope for our nation where God's Spirit moves throughout the churches and throughout the people. The people are so hungry that God pours out His Spirit. People say, oh, but people can't experience revival until they get broken. And that's true. Until we realize how hungry we are, we'll never be willing to go to the buffet. But I don't think that's what brings revival. Because it wasn't them on their face crying that brought revival. Listen to what it says in verse 10. After they had been broken, they're weeping, they're crying, they're mourning. Nehemiah said, now I want you to go and enjoy the food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared For this day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the priests calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. What did they understand? They understood that even when they thought they were all alone for 170 years in the midst of their own bad choices, God never left them. Because you see, the joy of the Word of God is redemption. The message of Christ is reconciliation. And I want you to hear me this morning. Your valley may seem so deep Your spirit may be so empty, but fullness and mountain is only a prayer away. See, I believe they began to go from weeping to rejoicing. Why? Because they recognized that even in the midst of their sin and misery, God had never left them. And I want you to hear me this morning, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you may be in the middle of a mess of your own making. You made bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, and you are having to deal with the consequences of those bad choices. Even in the midst of that, God's right there with you. 
He promises, I will not forsake you. I will never leave you. I'm there. And when they began to recognize that the whole time, for the 170 years, they were enslaved and they were out of their nation and their homes were destroyed and the city was destroyed and they had turned their back on God all of that time, God still loved them and still had a plan for them. And it said that filled them with joy. That's the food of the Spirit. That's what fills us up. It may be the hunger that brings us to the table, but what leaves us going away celebrating is recognizing that God loves and cares for you and His grace is sufficient. And no matter what you're going through, He's right there with you. When you're in the valley, God's with you. When you're in the midst of trouble, God is with you. I love the story. There's a husband bought his wife a brand new car, expensive car. He told her, now I know that, you know, you're going to worry about driving this car. It's an expensive car. It's really more than we can afford, but it is my love gift to you. And he said, what I'm doing is I'm going to give you all the insurance and registration and information about that. And and if you ever are in an accident, I'm going to put it in the glove box so that you'll remember where it is. Well, the wife drives the car for six months, seven months, eight months. She's driving to work one day and someone pulls in front of her and she's in an accident and she wrecks her car. She begins to weep and she begins to cry. She begins to get upset. She can't think, how am I going to tell my husband? Well, he's going to explode. I, this new car that we could barely afford and I just wrecked it. And, and then she remembered the insurance card. So, well, I've got to get the insurance out for the police. And she reached in the glove box and as she got the insurance card, a note fell out and it was from her husband. And on the note it said, Honey, if you're reading this, it means you probably had an accident. And he said, I want you to know it's just a car. I care more about you and your being safe than I do the condition of the car. It'll be okay. See, some of you, that's the letter that God wants you to hear this morning for your spirit. See, some of you have told you that, that the world will end if this happens. God says it doesn't. I'm here. And when the children of Israel heard that, they were overwhelmed. Let me ask you, church, are you hungry this morning? What are you hungry for? Are you tired of just having a snack, a quick tidbit? Maybe this morning your spirit is rumbling within you that, that it's hungry. It's tired of you trying to feed the things of the world that won't fill it. Do you desire the hunger and the presence and power of God this morning? Jesus promises in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When you're hungry for God, He promises He'll fill you. But you have to admit you're hungry. And that's a big step for some of us this morning. Some of you need to recognize what you've been filling yourself with instead of God. And it's time for you to push the religious chips and salsa away and belly up to the spiritual buffet and ask God to fill your plate. Let's pray.